0: This is the third Sunday of Advent, and it is in many Episcopal churches called Rose Sunday, or its old Latin name Gaudete Sunday, which comes from the Latin part of the old liturgy when you came down the aisle, the introit, and that was the opening uh, opening word in the introit. So it affords the opportunity to... Um, uh, advance an 800-year-old custom in the in the Western Church, and that is to wear rose-colored vestments on the third Sunday of Advent. Uh, there was a time when not very many Episcopal churches did that, because to wear these vestments may have been uh, signs of the undue influence of the of the Romish cancer. <laughs> so uh, the interesting thing is about about. History is that in the uh, in England now in the Church of England there is a revised prayer book called Common Worship, and in Common Worship it uh, suggests that on this Sunday it it might be a good idea to wear rose-colored vestments. So uh, some advances have been made in the liturgical territory since we come from a church that uh, believes uh, as a system of salvation by haberdashery. I want to preach on, uh, do a recapitulation of uh, Advent thus far, what the major themes are, and uh, focus on when I start to do this on uh, really the theme of this Sunday, which is joy. And in the history of the liturgy, this was the Sunday that had a little lighter tone to it in Western Europe uh, than the regular Sundays in Advent, which were uh, very penitential in their expression. And so throughout the whole of Advent, since the liturgical renewal in the church, we have attempted to lighten it a little bit, but there's still a very penitential aspect in many places to the season of Advent, so it's important to speak uh, about joy and what it means. The major themes of Advent are the necessity of being prepared, repentance, Looking at your life in a new way. And uh, for the last two weeks, I've mentioned this. Uh, the, one of the reasons for the heavily penitential tone in Advent was that the biblical passages that are read from the Gospels introduce our old friend John, Don't Sing Jingle Bells to Me, the Baptist. <laughs> and he's in Lent and he's in Advent. So it's very important to understand if if we believe uh, uh, the Holy Scriptures are part of the three-legged stool upon which our our tradition rests, upon our Christian faith and belief. For 1100 years, the Bible that Christians read was in Latin. It was Jerome's translation from the 300s A.D., and so last week we read from Matthew's gospel where John the Baptist is telling everybody who's coming out to see him, repent. And Jerome translates the Greek into Latin and says, penitentium agite, do penance. So for 1100 years, having a preparatory season that precedes Christmas, penitentium agite was the thing we were supposed to do as a major theme of the season, right? So we go to about 1517, and we have Martin Luther, who now is is reading Greek, as people in the West are, and he's looking at it and says, metanoiete, repent. And it means something different than just do penance. It means that we have to look at it in a different direction from where we find happiness. To turn around and look at the way in which we are conducting our affairs, our internal states, our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, and in our relational life, and as a people. And that, perhaps, was more important than anything else in the biblical period because John the Baptist and Jesus and all of the great prophets of Israel weren't thinking about I, 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 me, me, me. They were thinking about, we're part of the people. And who is this message for? And what is God's presence for? So we're going to come to the place where Jesus and John the Baptist, in a sense, is beginning this. He, they say, Paul certainly did, this message is for the nations. The Gentiles, ethne, those people... So it's important to see that that repentance is is an important way to look at the way we conduct ourselves corporately and and understand that. Hope, understood as honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm, that Christians are hopeful people and they believe that things can and will get better and that we also in some way should be Both rooted in the present, but future oriented, and believe that God comes to us in the past, the present, and the future, and is pointing us in the direction where we know how to live uh, congruent with his purposes for us. Expectation, expectancy in Advent is learning to make the full use of your imaginative powers. I think some would say that in uh, our present culture, it might appear otherwise, but there is a surprising lack of imagination. And cultivating the skills of imagination in our lives is an important thing to do. When I say this, I don't mean to, to say we should be living in a perpetual fantasy world, right? But people who are imaginative and playful come up with big ideas, and make and do big things in the culture that help everybody you know so making the full use of your imaginative powers is an important thing joy the sure and steady confidence that the uncertainties ambiguities con- conundrums of life will come become less confusing and come into surer and clearer focus as we are able to understand God's plan, both for us together as a community and personally with regard to how that affects our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. Joy is not a condition of uh, uh, giddy hilarity. I don't know about you, but I spent a fair amount of time in my life confusing joy with euphoria. Right? They're not the same. So when we think about the way in which we wish to be joyful, it's that we can expect that things will come clear. We'll see things a little bit more clearly than we used to. I wish I could tell you that I used to think that came with age. So, so so, what that meant was that you'd have more experience and you'd, you'd know stuff. Well, it, it also can mean the older you get, the, the more facile your capacity is to fool yourself. <laughs> and the capacity for us, you know, uh, people uh, deceiving themselves is infinite. It is infinite. So we're people of joy. And finally, in this time, and we will really... Uh, emphasize this as we get to christmas and that is is that christian people are to be about peace cooperating with the shalom of god that word in hebrew is an extremely powerful multifaceted word that has many meanings and it is fuller and richer than the word peace only you know it doesn't mean just the mere absence of conflict It means a transformation in the way in which we understand God's peaceful presence in our lives personally. So the peace is there for our internal conflicts and difficulties. But more to the point, it's also in the community of faith who must labor for a peaceful world and to be advocates for peace. In the reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah... We have, I've said this before, there are three Isaiahs. Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. Well, who cares? (laughs) The fact of the matter is that what's being spoken about in this prophetic book is uh, chronologically so long that no human being could live that long. Right? So, what I think the most reasonable biblical scholarship is that there was a school of Isaiah, there was Isaiah, and then there were Isaiah's students who, continu- who continued the isaianic tradition. How do you like that? <laughs> Put that on ice. Think about it. So I think today we hear from 2nd Isaiah, maybe 3rd, I'm not sure, chapter 35. And Isaiah is speaking about uh, the return from exile. When, the, when Jesus was born began to exercise his earthly ministry, people saw in him the fulfillment of the people's return from the exile in Babylon. It was widely believed at the time of Jesus that the the exile or the return from exile had not yet been completed. And they began to say that this sense of exile is corporate with regard to the way we understand our estrangement from others, from being away from Jerusalem and the internal states of alienation and exile that all of us feel as we live. And so in Jesus, we found someone whose words and works were indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And Isaiah is celebrating this. And Christian people will take up this text and say, this is predictive of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In Matthew's gospel, we have John the Baptist in jail. And he sends a messenger to Jesus and said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So Jesus has asked this question in public around uh, people who are listening. And uh, he, as is typical of him, does not give you a direct answer. He said, look at the results of my ministry. Look at what's being preached here, what's being done, what's being pointed to. And you make up your own mind about that. You need to see whether or not that is what you believe You know, that's what Paul meant when he talked about justification. Paul meant hearing this message over and over again. The surprising thing is that people, some, are going to believe it. Right? And when they say, I believe it, they're in. They're justified. Diakosunitheo. That very brief moment... When you say, I, yes, I uh, accept this now. I understand what this means. And so Jesus is then speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist, who was his herald and embodied in everything he said and did, John the Baptist, the culmination of all of the great prophets of Israel. And they could understand now what God's plan might be seen within human history, not from somewhere else. So Isaiah and Matthew are talking about the coming of Christ in terms of his birth, the advent of Jesus. James, which is the short epistle we read, is about waiting for the second coming. And I thought I might say something about what uh, Anglicans, Episcopalians, believe about this idea of the second coming and last night when I reread all that I wrote it was so dense and so long I said I simply can't do this uh, the way I thought I should so I'm going to read to you a little bit about what this is and you can chew on it for a while remember uh, there are a great many Christian groups and sects who have very fancy interpretations for what the end of the world is going to be like And when they read the apocalyptic parts of the New Testament, they tend to uh, bring to bear certain theories about what this means. I said to you a number of weeks ago that I subscribe to the view that, for example, the book of Revelation is a discussion not about what's going to happen in the future, but what has already happened in history. And the author of of the revelation of St. John the Divine is speaking about what has already happened and saying, this is how now, based upon that, we can cope within the world to be God's people. And how are we going to cope both with the joyful revelation that we have received and also the great tribulation and adversity that we have experienced? Just so you know, the fancy term for that view of Revelation is called preterism. But what I want to talk to you today about very briefly is something called amillennialism. And you can be grateful that I'm not going to talk a lot about this over time. But it's important, you know. There's a lot of people that believe that God is going to come or Jesus is going to come again and we're going to have a divine ethnic cleansing and then we'll be going through all kinds of judgment and tribulation and everything else. We're already going through that now. Amillennialism believe that the millennium is not an actual physical realm on earth. They do not believe that it will last a thousand years. Rather, it, it, it is currently active in the world today through the presence of the reign of Christ... The Bible, the Holy Spirit, and the activities of Christian faith. All the good things you do because you love God. All of the apocalyptic references in the Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and in most of the book of Revelation, are seen as occurrences which have already happened or which are symbolic in nature and not to be taken literally the Antichrist is looked upon figuratively and not not as a real person. This belief was held by many leaders of the early Christian Church during the first and second centuries. Many Christian denominations, including the Anglican Communion, Disciples of Christ, Lutheran, Eastern Orthodox, Reformed, Roman Catholic and some Baptists continue to teach this. But you know, we've got a 24-7 uh, news cycle these days and we've got people who are writing all these hair-raising books about stuff like this. You've got Left Behind, you have all of this stuff and they sell books. But I believe their biblical support is not as strong as some believe. Perhaps the best way to think about the second coming is to realize that Christ comes to us continually. That's why we have Advent every year. Christ comes to us continually as we seek to be faithful, to know the truth, and to be instruments of his grace and love. So it is, it is this coming of Christ that we celebrate and pray for in every age. In personal terms, you may have had an experience where uh, Jesus came to you in the course of your life more than once, but maybe far away a lot, or if not most of the time. And yet, the advent of Christ is always near you, always present to you. So give thanks this week for the possibility of joy in your life. As it said in the epistle to James, be patient with regard to when it might come and give thanks for it when it does. Give thanks for the coming of Christ into our hearts, in the liturgy, in our relationships, and in our work. Amen.